Welcome to the John Mark Homer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. This is what's left of the city of Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. In the first century, it was right on the northernmost border point between Israel and pagan territory. The city itself was pagan to the core, not Jewish. Pagan at the time was not a derogatory term. In fact, paganism was the official name for the mishmash of religion and spirituality all across the multi-ethnic Greco-Roman world. The city was originally called Panaeus, but just a few years earlier, the city was given by Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great. You recognize his name from the Christmas story. He, in turn, gave it to his son Philip as a birthday present for his 16th birthday, which is not a bad, like, what did you get for your birthday? A city, you know? (laughs) Nothing says privilege like, I got a city for Christmas, thanks, Dad. Philip, in turn, built a gorgeous white marble temple right there up against that rock wall for the worship of Caesar himself. And then he renamed the city Caesarea Philippi after Caesar and himself, hence the name. But the original name was Panaeus because it was home to the Greek god, it was temple to the Greek god Pan. The city itself is built up against a rock face, as you can see in the picture, and there's a deep cave in it, which is home to a spring. And then right there at the back of that cave, right now the spring is still there, and there's a very modest river that kind of comes out of the cave. But at the time, it was a geyser that gave water to basically a river delta through the entire valley. The ancients interpreted this spring in the cave to be a kind of portal to the underworld, and they called it the Gates of Hades. People would come from all over the Roman Empire to visit the Temple of Pan, which was built around the cave and the spring that, again, was the entrance to Hades itself. Now, Pan himself, just let me nerd out on you for a minute, I promise there's relevance, has a fascinating history. In Greek mythology and art, he's depicted as a fawn, half goat, half man, as he was the god of shepherds and flocks and the wild of nature. This is a statue that was found of the Greek god Pan in what archaeologists speculate and theorize was Caesar, Julius Caesar's father-in-law's house, but was covered over by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Yes, they are doing exactly what it looks like they are doing. Hi, good evening, welcome to church. <laughs> I put that up there not to make you laugh or not to shock you, because there's a lot of idealism in the secular Western world around kind of the ancient Mediterranean and the Greco-Roman world, and there's a lot of like, ah, there's like more and more cultural theorists that are calling that the creation story and Christianity the fall story, which is really interesting. In reality, the Greco-Roman world was a civil rights nightmare, and the level of sexual expression and exploitation was unlike anything in the most progressive corner of our city or our world. Like so many of the Greek gods, Pan was famous for his sexuality, his skill at seduction, and kind of an early version of hookup culture. In fact, promiscuous girls in the first century were called Pan girls. And in Greek mythology, Pan, this is very important, is the only god to ever die. If you read Plutarch, which I'm sure you all do on a regular basis, Pan, I do, you know, Pan died during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar when Jesus was born. Christian intellectuals from Eusebius in the fourth century to G.K. Chesterton in the last have made much of the fact that Pan dies at the same time that Jesus is born, and how that is kind of symbolic of the death of paganism and the birth of the church, the end of an old order and the beginning of what we now call Western civilization. It comes as no surprise that as the West began to move into a post-Christian secularism in the Enlightenment a few hundred years ago, that Pan made a comeback in Western art and literature, from Robert Frost to Robert Louis Stevenson to J.M. Barrie's story of Peter Pan. And yes, Peter Pan is named after the Greek god Pan. 
Think about it. Peter is wild and he's out in nature and he's in the forest and there's this kind of perpetual adolescence. For many intellectuals, in particular in England a century or two ago, Pan became an evocative symbol for the post-Christian cultural moment. This kind of, we're going back to the golden era of our pre-Christian past where we re-embrace our animal nature and we explore wild sexuality and we kind of have sex with whoever we want on a whim and we just run wild through nature and life. All that to say, Caesarea Philippi, or as most people around Jesus' time would have called it, Peneus, was the bleeding edge of the pagan world. And Jesus comes here, of all places, not Jerusalem, not Philippi, I'm sorry, not Bethsaida or Capernaum, not Bethlehem, here, to ask the question that will give shape to Matthew's gospel from here until the end. Let's work through the text line by line. Again, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, again, 25 miles north, about a two days walk from Jesus and the disciples' hometown. He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, son of man was Jesus' favorite name for himself, and this is not Jesus like kind of referring to himself in third person like Kanye. We all love Kanye though, at least now. Or do we? I don't know, I do, but is that okay? Am I allowed to like him anymore? I don't know, is that bad? I don't know. But it's not that. Son of man, it's very deliberate on Jesus' part. It's a cryptic phrase that's used through the Old Testament and has more than one meaning. It's used by the prophet Ezekiel, and all he means is kind of a prophet. But then it's used in Daniel 7, which is the strange kind of mysterious passage that Jesus would allude to on a regular basis, where there is a figure and a vision of heaven that is a divine and human figure, that is divinity and humanity in one creature. And that creature is called the Son of Man. The point is, if you're hearing Jesus in the first century, or even if you're reading Jesus today, and he calls himself the son of man, you don't know exactly what he means. And that is, that's deliberate. It's designed by Jesus to get you to kind of listen, pay close attention and think, okay, who Jesus exactly do you think you are? They replied, 14, some people say that you're John the Baptist. That's one working theory, that you're John the Baptist back from the dead because you're so similar. Others say Elijah. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Elijah was a Hebrew prophet that never died in the story. And then the last prophet before John the Baptist, a few hundred years before, was named Malachi. And in his literary work, in the last paragraph, there is a prophecy about the return of Elijah to usher in the age to come. So people in the first century were literally waiting around, reading the news, so to speak, waiting for Elijah to return. Of course, he's a strong contender. Still others, Jeremiah, which was one of the kind of major prophets, and there are all sorts of similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, just meaning you are either one of the prophets back from the dead, or it's more likely people just assume you're another prophet in the same ilk as Isaiah or somebody of significance like that. Notice the common denominator is all people agree and are starting to realize that Jesus is more than just a really smart rabbi, that he is at minimum some kind of a prophet. Now, what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Peter, what about you? James, John, what do you as a group think? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Okay, two back-to-back titles, Messiah and son of the living God. Let's take them one at a time. First off, Messiah. Or some of your Bibles read, you are the Christ, because the Greek word here behind, you're reading an English translation of a Greek biography. The Greek word is Christos, which is where we get the English word Christ, but it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get the English word Messiah. Yes, that is confusing. Point, Christos, Mashiach, Christ, Messiah, it's all the same word. As most of you know, it was not Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Jesus Christ, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And if you don't know that, don't feel bad at all. I've been calling, I've been praying to Mr. Christ for it, like, don't. It's a title, don't feel bad, but it's a title. Literally, it means anointed one or anointed king. 
In the Old Testament, it's used for King David and a few of the other anointed kings. But by Jesus' day, it had come to be used as the the title for a very specific king who was still to come. Based on many prophecies in the Old Testament, as well as the narrative arc of Scripture itself, many Jews in the first century were waiting for the coming of an anointed king who would set Israel free from Rome's oppression and usher in an era of peace and justice. Nobody knew for sure when or where the Messiah would come from or what exactly he would be like. Some thought he would be like a fierce warrior who would muster an army and defeat the pagan horde that was Rome. Others thought of him as a fiery prophet who would cleanse the temple of its corruption and its complicity and idolatry and injustice. But the scriptures were clear that a king would come from God himself and usher in the kingdom of God, where God's will would out long last be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the word they used for this coming king was in Greek, Christos, or in Hebrew, Mashiach, or Messiah. Peter is saying, I believe you're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the long-awaited Messiah. Second, the son of the living God. Now, living God is most likely a subtle dig at Pan, Right, A more literal translation of the Greek is the son of God of the living one as opposed to the dead one. Remember, he's in the region of Caesarea Philippi. There's the temple to Pan, who, according to Plutarch, just died a few years before. Our God is alive, unlike the God that you worship over there. But the title Son of God has multiple connotations. It is used through the Old Testament um, at times just for the king or for the Messiah. There's a famous prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 where God, speaking of the Messiah, says, quote, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. There's another one in Psalm 2, also speaking of the Messiah from God, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So some scholars argue this is just a synonym. It's just another way of saying Jesus is the Messiah. But most scholars argue, well, but, G- but Peter already said that. That doesn't really make sense. And that is a phrase that is open to interpretation. And while it's unlikely that Peter has in mind the Nicene Creed or a sophisticated kind of mental architecture of God as Trinity and Jesus as the second member of the Trinity, that comes much later. It is likely that Peter is saying, I don't get it all yet, and the math does not add up in my mind, but you have some, you have something that we don't have. You have some kind of a strange, mysterious relationship to the God that you call Father, and we think that means that in some way you share the Father's essence in your person. Either way, the point is, here's the point. Up until now, if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you, the reader, are well aware that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Matthew is written on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, and you're in, he's very blatant from page one, you're in on the secret that Jesus is more than just a really brilliant, like, early version of a TED Talk. But the disciples have yet to realize that and are just now, for the first time in Matthew's story, just now coming awake to the reality that Jesus is a rabbi, but he is so much more. This is a watershed moment. When Peter, who is likely speaking for the 12, for the group, as a kind of de facto, you're the spokesperson, says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Which is why, 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you. That's a common rabbinic blessing for a student who gave a good answer. Simon, son of Jonah, that was his father's name, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, a phrase that actually we get from Hebrew, it's an Hebrew idiom, just meant, you know, from a human being, but by my Father in heaven. That insight, you didn't just like read that online or a great book you found at Powell's or you're really smart. That was a revelation from God himself. 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, right over there, over there in the wall, will not overcome it. Now, there's a lot here to unpack. In particular, three things to explain. Peter, the church, and the gates of Hades. Again, one at a time. First off, Peter. In verse 16, Simon is called Simon Peter, 
which is what many people call him today. But this is actually the one and only place in Matthew that he is called by that double name. And you gotta love the double name. I mean, people with the double name. It's just so cool, you know? I'm kidding, it's not pretentious. I did not name myself. I can't help it if I have twice as much awesomeness as all of you. Um, This is the one and only time that he's called by that double moniker of Simon Peter. And what pretty much all of us miss in English is that Peter was not a name in Hebrew or Aramaic like it is in modern day English. Anybody in the room, your name is Peter? Middle name? None? There's not one, thank you. Right, we have one. In English, Peter is a proper noun and a name. Like you hear the word Peter and you think of a person. In Jesus' day, it was not a name. It was a noun, meaning a rock. Now, this next part is a little bit confused. You're all smart people. Most of you will get it, but if you don't, don't feel bad about that at all. The Gospels are a little bit confusing because there's three layers. Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic, the lingua franca of his world, but Matthew was written in Greek, the lingua franca of kind of the Mediterranean as a whole, and now we're reading a translation of it in English also known as job security for yours truly. (laughs) In Aramaic, Peter and the rock are the exact same word, it's Cephas. In fact, um, depending on what English Bible you have, you read um, his, Simon is called Cephas later on in the book of Acts. And so it's you are Cephas, and on this Cephas I will build my church. In Greek, it's just a little bit different because Greek nouns have a gender, which we don't have that in the English language. The noun for rock is Petra, and it's a feminine noun in Greek, but Peter is a dude, he's a man, so Matthew has to tweak the word a little bit and kind of make up a word and into Petros to make the noun male for Peter. So in Greek, it reads, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. But it's the exact same word. If you're reading it in Greek, it's the exact same word. The point is, pretty much all scholars argue that how it's translated is not all that helpful. The most literal translation is, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Word plays were a common form of both humor and teaching in the first century world. As it was an oral culture, you could not take notes when Jesus was up teaching. And so if there was a rhyme to it, it was easier for you to remember later on. Simon's name isn't Simon Peter any more than Jesus' name is Mr. Jesus Christ. It is a title, and there's a symmetry there in the literature. Peter's declaration, you are Jesus the Messiah, or the Christ. Jesus' declaration, you are Simon the Rock. And it is a title for the role that Peter is to play in the future of the church, which is the role of kind of a founding father. Jesus goes on in the next phrase to use the imagery of a temple. And so the imagery of a rock is like the capstone or the foundation for the temple that is the church. In the same way that America has founding fathers who gave shape to the reality that now we live in. I remember when I was reading David McCullough's biography of John Adams, it was just striking to me how much influence one mind had over my day-to-day life, right? And in the same way, Peter and the apostles function kind of as the founding fathers of the church. But Peter in particular, in particular, if you've not read the book of Acts, go read it, is the de facto leader of the 12, and he really is the rock. He is kind of the first stone down in the temple that is the church. Second phrase, Jesus goes on, and on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia, and it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word that's used all through the Old Testament that shows up in your English translation as the assembly of the Lord or the congregation of the Lord. It's the word used for when all of Israel would come together at the base of Mount Sinai or later at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to gather in front of the presence of God, the locus point of God's presence over the temple. Jesus is saying that his followers, or what we call the church, or what he right here called the church, are a kind of new Israel and new temple. 
an Israel that is no longer based on ethnicity, but on allegiance to Jesus as king, and a temple that is no longer built out of concrete and of wood, but out of men and women, Jew and Gentile, who together house, so to speak, the presence of God, who become the new locus point of the overlap between heaven and earth. Finally, quote, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some of your translations have the gates of hell. That's fine, but don't think of hell as in Dante's Inferno or a fire and brimstone preacher down the you know, street at PSU. The Greek word here is Hades, and it was the word for the Greek concept of a murky kind of post-mortem underworld of death and evil. The Hebrew version of it was called Sheol. In Jesus' day, it was parlance for the place and the power of death and of evil itself. The New Living Translation translates the phrase as, quote, all the power of hell will not conquer it, it being the church. Dale Bruner, a scholar on Matthew, has, even the gates of death will not be able to withstand this church. Another top shelf scholar has, the doors of the world of death will not be stronger than the church is. Remember, Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi, if not like standing out in front of Pan's temple or Caesar's temple, teaching the location of the gates of Hades. Jesus seems to be saying that all the powers of death and Hades will not overcome the church. Or to flip that around, because the language that's used by Jesus is actually positive, not negative. I hesitate to say this, but it's offensive, not defensive. All the powers of death and hell will not stand up against the advance of the church out into the Greco-Roman world. And here we are, two millennia later, on the other side of the world. Most of us are not Jewish. The temple of Pan is literally a ruin. It was destroyed hundreds and hundreds of years later by a Muslim army. It's gone. The worship of Caesar we laugh at. Paganism itself, which at the time was the dominant belief system in the known world, is a thing of the past. And the church is not only here, it is alive and well. And it's easy to forget this in a secular city like, yes, like Portland, but it is thriving. The church is stronger than it's ever been, in particular in the global south, in Africa, where most Christians in the world live right now, in Asia. The church growth right now in China is the fastest rate of growth in the history of the church for two millennia. It's gonna change the course of China. It's gonna change the course of the world. The church is still here. Pan, Caesar, paganism, the empire are all gone. And Jesus goes on, 19. I will give you, on top of all of that, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What a great line. I will give you, and the you there is actually singular. So he's talking to Peter, although the same language is used a little bit later for the church. But here he's talking to Peter. I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. The keys in the ancient world, you know, the master of a house or the king of a palace would give keys to uh, the top servant in charge or the highest political official. It was really a role of honor. Keys, as in the picture here from the Roman era, were actually put onto the end of a ring. This is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom, meaning I'm giving you the authority and the right to welcome, to unlock the door to my house and to welcome even non-Jewish people in, to welcome people into my house and into the kingdom of God. Which if you read the book of Acts is exactly what happens. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up in front of the entire city of Jerusalem with Jews from all over the Mediterranean world in town for the feast, and he welcomes into the kingdom all Jews who give allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah and the son of the living God. In Acts chapter eight, he welcomes all Samaritans who are half Jewish, half Gentile into the kingdom of God. On Acts chapter 10, which if you know Acts, this is the fulcrum point in the book of Acts. He's at the home of Cornelius, who not only is Cornelius a Gentile? He's a Roman military official. He is anathema to a first century Jew. And he welcomes Cornelius and all of his God-fearing household into the kingdom of God. But part of Peter's job was not just to welcome people in and play that role of hospitality, but also to keep certain people out, or maybe a better way to say that is to draw some kind of line of demarcation 
between who is a disciple, who's following Jesus, and who's actually not a disciple. That's, that's not actually following Jesus. Jesus goes on, next line, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's really strange language to us. Some of your translations have whatever you tie up on earth will be tied up in heaven. Whatever you untie on earth will be untied in heaven. Again, that's just, that doesn't ring a bell for anybody in the room, I'm guessing. That was very common stock rabbinic language in Jesus' day, binding and loosing. And what it meant was to allow or to not allow someone or something into a community a doctrine, an ethic, a behavior, or a person. We bind you, you know, or we, we tie you up or we untie you. We, we forbid you, we say no, or we welcome you in. That was Peter, part of Peter's job description. Now, this does not mean that Peter has absolute power. There's a whole thing here I don't have time for about the Catholic doctrine of the Pope. Um, and infi- well, that's a legitimate thing. That's, that's a whole, I just don't have time for it tonight. And this is where they get the idea of infallibility of the Pope, which is a problem because in the next story, Next week, Peter, the next thing Peter literally says, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Hard to get infallibility from that. But notice, and I say that not out of disrespect at all, this does not mean that Peter has absolute power. If you have an NIV or an ESV translation, notice that there is a footnote to an alternate translation at the bottom of your page, will have been. A more literal translation from Greek to English is, quote, whatever you tie up on earth will have been tied up in heaven, and whatever you untie on earth will have been untied in heaven. It's just clumsy language in English. It's really weird, and that's why it's in the footnote. The idea is that when you, Peter, make a decision on earth, that decision will have already been made in heaven. Again, doesn't mean he's infallible. Read the book of Acts. He makes a few bad decisions. But the point is, God is behind Peter and the community. R.T. France, a brilliant intellectual and scholar on Matthew, writes, this is, quote, not a promise of divine endorsement, but of divine guidance. God is saying, I I will be there as you have to sift through, as you have to kind of set some house rules for the family of God and say, this is behavior, these are theologies or ideas or ways of life and being in relationship that that we let in and we welcome in on other things. We say, no, that's just not how we do things in the family of God. That's just not how we think the new humanity was designed by God to flourish and thrive. That's just not how we live under the reign and the rule of Jesus in the kingdom. That's part of his role and God is there with Peter and the apostles in the community to both welcome people in and to guard the parameters of the kingdom of God. Finally, 20, then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, that's not passive aggressive, like, but retweet me if you want or whatever. (laughs) It's not insecurity. It's not that Jesus has an inferiority complex. It's that Jesus is really smart. And this, for us, again, is a kind of concept out there. Oh, Jesus is the Messiah. It's a first century category. We're not familiar with that language. This was an incendiary idea in Jesus' world because the world already had a ruler, Caesar. And Israel already had a sub-ruler, Herod, who was called the king of the Jews. To claim that Jesus was the Messiah was to claim that Caesar and Herod are the parody of which Jesus is the reality that our primary allegiance is not to Rome or to Israel or for us to America, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It is to Jesus in the kingdom of God. And that calls into question every single power structure in the world, which is why the moment that it comes out that Jesus is the Messiah, he is arrested by who? The Romans and the Jewish leaders at the temple in Jerusalem who have a vested interest in the status quo and recognize Jesus is a threat to the power brokers of the day. And a few days later, he is put to death at the temple as a threat to the temple and to the empire. Jesus is up for that, but his time has not yet come. He still has work left to do. So he says, hey, just keep this on the DL. Don't tell anybody yet because we still have work left to do. And once that is out, it's the end is in sight. Now, exegesis work done, work done. Take a nice deep breath in if you want. Breathe out all the Aramaic and the confusion and the pan statue in your memory now. (laughs) Tonight's nightmare about that. I'm sure I will get an email on that one. Um, (laughs) This entire story 
is built around the very simple but profound question, who do you say I am? In fact, this story is the fulcrum point in Matthew's gospel. If you pick up a heavyweight commentary on Matthew, I don't expect you to, but I do this once in a while. I have a few at my house. And a few like really, you know, long multi-volume commentaries on Matthew have to break it into two books. Break it right here at Matthew 16, not because it's like the exact middle text-wise, because this really is the fulcrum point of Matthew's gospel. Everything before Matthew 16 is the lead up to the question, who do you say I am? And everything after is the follow-up to the answer, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that is more than a clever literary technique from Matthew. It's the writer's way of getting you, the reader, or in oral culture, the hearer, to let Jesus ask you the very same question. To let Jesus just kind of, with a gentle love, probe into your heart, who do you say I am? Just like in Matthew's day, there are all sorts of ideas and ideologies out there about who Jesus is. There's Jesus the wise sage, Jesus the social justice warrior, Jesus the political revolutionary, Jesus the holy man but in the ilk of a Buddha or a Confucius, Jesus the prophet in Islam. Islam. There's a Republican version of Jesus, there's a Democratic version, there's a military nationalist Jesus, there's a vegan Jesus, there's a... <laughs> Everybody has a Jesus, right? Will the real Jesus please stand up? And, and how, you, how you answer the question, how you answer the question, who do you say I am, will define you. That is a core conviction of Bridgetown Church, that the most important thing about you is your vision of God that Christian theology and spirituality at its best is the healing of your vision of God and the reunion of your soul with that vision. This is where neuroscience and theology are in complete agreement. We become like our vision of God. Even if you're a secular person and you don't believe in God and you're a Darwinian materialist, you will still become like whatever you replace God with in your mind and your value system. Whatever you claim is ultimate, the meaning and purpose of life, even if you think life is meaningless, you will still come up with a meaning because you're a human being and we're meaning-making creatures. We can't live without meaning. And you will become like whatever you think the meaning and purpose of life is about. If that's sexual expression, if that's individual autonomy, if that's wealth, if that's power, if that's success, if that's intelligence, if that's you fill in the blank. The mid-century prophet A.W. Tozer once said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We move toward our mental image of God, meaning we become like who we think God is or is not. But all too often, our mental image of God or our opinion about who Jesus actually is says far more about us than it does about Jesus. Like we could go to Powell's books after the gathering. We could walk down the street and walk into Powell's and go up to the religion section. I'm there all the time. And we could walk to one of the end rows that has all the like kind of popular pseudo scholarship, popular level books on Jesus from the last decade or two. The Zealot book or one of the leftover ones from Marcus Borg or the Jesus seminar or whatever. And we could go there with N.T. Wright or Dr. Gary Bashirs or Tim Mackey or somebody who's smarter than the rest of us. And we could kind of leaf through and read through any one of the kind of popular reimaginings of Jesus from the last few decades. And we would learn far more about the author than we would learn about the historical Jesus. And what you really quick discover, in particular once you get into the world of history and scholarship, is that Jesus just becomes, for so many people, even very well-meaning and very intelligent people, just another projection of our own opinion, our own bias, our own desire, even our own wishful thinking, or our ethnic background, or socioeconomic background, or political background, or whether we're from a coastal city or the rural heartland, which is why we need Jesus, to cut through projection and give us revelation. But notice, Jesus does not show up on day one, in page one of Matthew's gospel, and just announce, I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, believe in me. Or even ask the question, 
and do you believe in me? Or who do you say I am? I just told you, I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's not, that's not Jesus' style. He's far more subtle and sophisticated. Jesus just goes around Israel doing Messiah things. <laughs> yeah. Healing the sick. Who are you? The Son of Man. Who is that? Mm, who is that? <laughs> Casting out demons. Feeding you lunch. Then more lunch. <laughs> then more lunch. Then who is this Son of Man? Walking, he's just literally, he's doing all the things the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would come and do. But he never stands up and says, I am the Messiah. He just does the things. This is so like God. And again, this is where Jesus, I think, is revelation of what God is like. The great question for so many of us, in particular in a secular framework, is why does God not make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he make himself more clear? Why is God like the great silence at the center of the universe and the great silence at the center of our soul? So many good or at least legitimate answers to that question. I think one is because in the universe that God has chosen to actualize, love is the highest value. And love demands freedom and choice. Without freedom and choice, there is no love. That means you have to have an option to live in relationship to God or not, or you stop being an image bearer with creation and dignity and volition and respect, and you become just an automaton or a robot. And so God, most theologians argue, veils himself. He, and it's not that God is playing hard to get or that he's a deist or that he doesn't really care about you. It's that if God were to reveal himself to you, he would overwhelm your capacity for freedom and he would overwhelm your capacity for love. And so God in great love and respect for human dignity and free will chooses to be subtle to be cryptic, to be the son of man, to be rather than blatant and in your face like so much of our culture is, to just go around doing the things that only God can do and to out of respect for your person, let you draw your own conclusions. But there comes a time, and it's not on page one of Matthew's gospel, it's on page 16. There comes a time when Jesus will come up to you and he will ask that question, who do you say I am? Some of you are new to Jesus and you're not ready to ask, much less answer that question yet. You just, you're just new to this whole thing. And we just wanna say, we're so happy you're here. Welcome, take as long as you need. Come to Alpha on Wednesday nights. Come here anytime you want. Make friends with the people around you. Get into a community. Ask any question you have. Doubt, rage, do, what, do your thing. We're just, well, within reason, but do your thing. <laughs> We're so happy you're here. Take as long as you need to just follow Jesus around. Sit at Jesus' feet. Listen to his teaching. Consider what he has to say. Even try on his way of life and his worldview from the inside out. Hold it up against any other religion, any other tradition, any other philosophical or psychotherapeutic worldview and see if it does not lead you to life far more than any other option. And take as long as you need. But others of you have been doing that for a while. You've been around. You've been to Alpha you're still here, well done. Some of you have even been following Jesus for a while, and you're ready for Jesus to ask you the question. You're ready for the before and after moment. You're ready to make a commitment. Who do you say that I am? And if and when you come to the same place as Peter, and you say with Simon, I'm sorry, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, as in Matthew's gospel, that is a before and after moment. And there, from there on, what begins to happen in the interior architecture of your heart is at least two shifts, the same as in the life of Simon. First is from fear to faith. Imagine that you're Peter. All you and your people have ever known for 500 years is decline. It's 
started with Babylon and the exile, and then it was the Medo-Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and now it's Rome that you're under the boot of. And things keep getting worse. The pagans encroach and are now practically to your front doorstep, just a day or two's walk north from where you grew up. Imagine how scary a city like Caesarea Philippi would have been for Peter. Imagine it like an Amish teenager and his first trip to New York City or San Francisco or L.A., right? Seriously, it would have been really scary. And then Jesus says to Simon, you are the rock. Me? You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, see that over there? The, the, the assault, the, the edifice of paganism in the Roman Empire, it will not overcome. It will not stand against the advance of the church out into the world. Put another way, you don't need to live in fear. You don't need to put your head down and settle for mediocrity and decline and defeat and survival. No, you can have faith for the future. That is faith. Faith has been defined as confidence grounded in reality. Confidence, a way of living like your chest wide and your, your eyes over the horizon to the future with a, a confidence in the reality that God is alive from the dead. He's not dead. He's not a myth. He's not a figment of the imagination or a projection of my psychology. He is alive. He is good. He's involved in human history. He's involved in our city, involved in our church. He's involved in my life, wrapped up in all of it. And whatever comes, or does not come, I do not need to fear because God is with me. It's been said that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's fear. And it is so easy to look at a city like Portland and just feel fear. Feel fear over the upcoming election cycle, which everybody's scared about on both sides. Fear that we're, you know, I mean, I've been reading a lot lately about the of the early harbingers of the end of religious liberty in our country. And we are just one Supreme Court decision away from the end of Bridgetown Church as a nonprofit with any kind of a paid staff. And so for myself or some of our other staff here, it's a, it's a very real possibility that it will become illegal to do our job in our lifetime. I hope not, but there's a very real possibility that in my lifetime, I will have to pick between an income stream to provide for my family and orthodoxy. I read one essay a few days ago in the New York Times and I feel that fear in my body. And not just for followers of Jesus, so much of our life and culture, in particular with the digital machine, is run off of fear. Think about the fear right now or terror around climate change, around like politics, around so much. And fear-based living is lethal. It will kill life. Because as long as we need our life to go a certain way, and we, we need it, and we feel anxiety if our control over the life and the people in our life are under threat, as long as we live that way, we will inevitably manipulate and bully and hurt and domineer other people in our vain attempt to maintain control over our world and we will never become people of love and joy and peace and inner freedom. For our generation, very similar to that of Simon, all any of us in the room, unless if you're very old, have, which we're very happy you're here if you're here, but I doubt it, it's late at night. But all we've ever known for decades is decline in the American church. Every year, less followers of Jesus. Every year, less social status, less religious liberty, less whatever, less moral high ground, whatever the thing is, all any of us have ever known is decline. Not around the global church, but around the American church. And it would be so easy for us just to feel a kind of defeatism, no kind of robust faith, no dream for the future of the church and our city or our country or our world. But if you are Simon and you're standing on the edge of the pagan map and you realize Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to you, the gates of Hades itself will not prevail against the movement that you're a part of. That is the beginning in your heart of the movement from fear to faith. That is a lifelong journey. One way to frame the entirety of the spiritual journey is as a decrease in fear and an increase in faith. 
Another way to say that is a decrease in an anxious striving for control and an increase in your capacity to trust and live in the love and the joy and the peace and the freedom of the kingdom of God. A psychologist said to me recently, all healing is the removal of fear. I read a pastor this morning that said, sanctification is a lifelong process of day by day, step by step, the removal of one fear after another in your heart. Is that how you think of the spiritual journey? It's the removal of fear because people that don't live on fear, people that don't need to control the people and events of their life to be happy and okay, become people of love and courage. For many of you right now, Jesus' target in your heart, I think this is pretty much true all of the time, is what we most fear. What we just, we need or we think we need to live a happy life. And the way that you know most of the time is when that thing is taken away from you or there's a chance that it will be taken away from you. And then all of a sudden that exposed, it's terrifying, it's scary, I don't wish it on anybody, but yet what a gracious invitation from Jesus and a gentle nudge to look our fear in the eye and to realize, oh wow, I think I need this job, income, reputation, relationship status, person, health, whatever the thing is. I think I need this, not want it, that's fine and it's healthy, need it to be happy and at peace and to love people. What if I don't? What if I'm blessed? What if I'm living in the kingdom of heaven and no one or nothing can take that away from me? What if I'm in the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace and the Trinitarian community is in me and my home is not a address or a country or a city. My home is in God. I abide. I make my home. I come to rest in God as he abides and makes his home and comes to rest in me and no one or nothing can take that away from me. Not height, not depth, not powers or principalities, not the left, not the right, not this law, not that law, not religious liberty or the lack thereof, not illness or health, not marriage or singleness, not my dream coming true or absolute failure. Nothing can take me out of the kingdom. I'm in the kingdom with Jesus, and because of that, I'm okay and don't need to fear. That's the first shift. The second shift, and this will just take a minute, is from fishing to founding. That is so cheesy and lame and proof that I had a busy day. I'm so very sorry. (laughs) What I mean by that lousy language is Peter was a provincial middle-class fisherman from a village in the Galilee, not an elite from Jerusalem or Athens or Rome. And yet when he gave his allegiance to Jesus, he became the rock. He was given a role to play in the temple or the church of God. And while we have to be careful here because Jesus does not go, we're Western individualists, so we individualize everything. We make a story that is about Peter and the church, somehow about me and my future career or whatever it is. And Jesus does not go around like a good millennial parent and give them all a title and a role. Peter, you're the rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. John, you're the tree. And on this tree, I will grow my (laughs) apple or whatever. Thomas, you're the willow in the wind. And on this, I will make my basket or whatever it is. Like, he doesn't give everybody a trophy, right? Peter is unique. And he has a role to play that you don't have to play and I don't have to play. But still, I think that Peter or Simon is paradigmatic of a design pattern that you see all the way through the library of scripture where God takes very ordinary people and elites too, but rarely, and he calls them up into a significant role in the kingdom. Now, we have to redefine significance along the metrics of Jesus, not of Western culture and Hollywood and Wall Street. Sure, that's a whole other thing. But Jesus does this on a regular basis. He says, you have a role for you to play in the church. You have a role for you. You, you're ready. You trust me. You're moving from fear to faith. Here's what I have. Here's the role that you play. Peter might be, or Simon might be the only one who is the rock. But in his letter, if you read the New Testament, he says that all followers of Jesus are, quote, living stones. You might not have the capstone role. I might not. We're all living stones in the temple of God. 
I think of the 150 of you that were at our leadership summit last week. Many of you don't know what that is. That's totally fine. Many more of you will be there in next year as you become a leader at Bridgetown Church in the next season. God is calling many of you in the room tonight up into a, some kind of a role in the church. If not Bridgetown Church, then just the church at large. Again, it's easy to aim our individualism at that and then just to mean, well, God has a really cool career path for me. All great things, if you've been around, we know, you have, you know we have a very high value for work out, done outside of the church in our city. It's beautiful. But God is calling some of you in the room tonight up. And you have a role to play in the church and in our church right here, and we need you to step up and say yes. To end, circle back with me to Caesarea Philippi. We know from history that over time, this city that was once the dominant hub of paganism in the area became a bastion for the church of Jesus, became the seat of the bishop for the entire region. In fact, the bishop of Caesarea Philippi was sent to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD to formulate the Nicene Creed. Archaeologists deduce that by the fourth century, every single temple along that rock wall from the temple to Pan to the temple to Caesar, all of them had been converted into churches to Jesus of Nazareth. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we live in a city that isn't all that different from Caesarea Philippi. A magazine I read recently called Portland the Post-Christian Frontier. We're on the bleeding edge of the secular and pagan kind of world, or at least that in America. Portland, as we all know, is very pan-ish. We all loathe the Portland, Portlandia slogan, the place where young people go to retire. And you're like, I don't loathe that. That's like my life calling. But um, <laughs> while that is less and less true due to rising cost of living, still there is a Peter Pan-like perpetual adolescence here. A sexual exploration would be the most generous way to say it, or exploitation. A wild love of nature and the woods, air. And it would be really easy to live in fear, to just settle for decline, to have no hope or dream or healthy kind of ambition for the future of our city or the church in our city, and just kind of keep your head down, don't say anything at work, watch Netflix at night, and come to church on the weekend. But if Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, not just a smart rabbi, not even just a prophet, but he's far more. If we have nothing to fear, not even death and Hades itself, if the reality is there is a God, a creator who is good and present and involved, and if nobody can take you out of the kingdom, if all that is around you, the air that you breathe is the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace and nobody and nothing can take that or him or them away from you, then you have nothing to fear. You have a role to play in the future and it's time for us to dream again. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. To join The Circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.